Brilliant. Right. Can you have your Bibles, please? They're on the end of the rows. Right. Can you go to page 1102? Uh, The main reading tonight is from Acts, Acts chapter 9. And then while you're finding page 1102, maybe just pop a finger in page 1191, which is the book of 1 Timothy. So you've got that, page 1102, and then page 1191. And don't worry, we're going to read it out in the first few minutes. Why not just slip a finger in it? And I'm going to read this, and I'm going to pray. So I'm reading from the start of chapter 9. Uh, in the book of Acts. And it says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, Why did you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple called Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Why don't we pray together? Lord, help. Amen. Okay. Appreciate your prayers tonight as I preach. For the past couple of months, I've had the great privilege and joy of going, uh, leading one of the groups on our evening Alpha course. And it's just, a, it's just been an amazing chance to go on a short journey with some genuinely brilliant people, uh, learning about and discussing big questions of life, of purpose, of faith, of Christianity. And the stories of transformation, of uh, encounter with God that I see coming out of Alpha always teach me a lot about the grace of God. And they remind me what it is to follow him and to know him. And our story today is a bit like that. It's a story today of transformation that teaches us about the grace of God, of following Jesus, of the power of the Spirit. 
but in a very special way. You see, this story of conversion from 2,000 years ago was for you personally. God's design in converting Paul was to give you a hope for salvation and for those you know. Why can I say this? Well, this is where you need to flick to page 1,191. So 1 Timothy 1, 15. This is Paul writing. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. For that, for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So Paul says, God saved me and showed patience to me as an example for all those who will inherit eternal life. So this dramatic story that I've just read tonight is an example for us about salvation. This teaches us about what it is to be a Christian, about what it is to meet God, to follow him, about his great love for us. And in fact, it shows us some amazing things. And the first is this. There is no one too unlikely for God. There is no one too unlikely for God. There is no one who is too far from his grace. There is no darkness too great that his light cannot shine into it. There is no one who has sinned or been sinned against that the Lord cannot welcome into his family through Jesus Christ. There is no one who is too unlikely for God. Don't we love unlikely people? Well, I do anyway. I had the chance to watch a talent show. I was away with college recently. And we had, you know, an acoustic night, which was actually led by our own Jess Lane. So if you see Jess, do give her like a fist bump or something, because she did brilliantly. But it was an acoustic night, so people were cracking out their talents. And my favorite people are the people who come up, and, you know, I immediately get a sense of, oh, goodness, what's going to happen here? Because I'm sorry, I'm judging people, really, aren't I? I'm really sorry. But, you know, when you see somebody like, oh, what's this going to be like? And then amazingly, they're actually incredible. That's my favorite kind of person. And I know that I'm a terrible person too. They're a terrible person. But I'm sure you are too because we're a nation who loves people like Susan Boyle. Right? We love the, we love the underdog in this nation. We love the person who comes up on stage or we see them and they're like, oh, could they ever do this, whatever it is? And then suddenly they do and we love it. You know, we love the, the triumph of the person who, like the English football team, let's face it, always the underdogs. We love it. But I wonder if we do the same thing in terms of seeing people as unlikely with faith. I wonder if we consider people and think, I wonder if they could ever become a Christian. I wonder if we see people and think, I wonder if they are too far. In a way, in a sense, it's almost if we say someone's no for them. But what Saul shows us is that there is no one too unlikely for God. There is no one too far from the Lord. God can save anyone from anywhere. See, at the the time Saul converted, he was making a career out of killing and imprisoning Christians. Earlier in Acts, we read of Paul approving of the stoning of Stephen. And from him going from house to house, either dragging people off, including whole families to be imprisoned, or to have them murdered. And in our passage, we read this. You can read with me from verse 1 of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul was hell-bent on destroying Christianity. 
In fact, the, the language that Luke uses is very deliberate. And he, it's deliberately chosen to paint in our minds the picture of an animalistic beast, you know, breathing out murderous threats like a bull to a red rag. And the Greek that he uses is very particular. It's uh, used nowhere else in the New Testament. And it's actually used to describe like boars devastating a wild vineyard in the Psalms and of the ravaging of a body by a beast. So similarly, when um, it describes him ravaging the people in Damascus, the language is described literally of him mauling people. So it's like he's an animal. It's animalistic. You know, he's mauling Christians like a grizzly bear to a fluffy bunny rabbit. But amazingly, the grizzly bear bear becomes the fluffy bunny rabbit. There is no one who could be further from God than Saul was, I think. He wanted to destroy every shred of the Christian faith, of the Christian people, like some kind of wild animal. And so we see from this that God can save anyone from anywhere, that there was no one too unlikely for him. And this is good news if you're coming tonight and you feel potentially unworthy to be loved by God. There is nothing you can do that could put you beyond the salvation of Jesus Christ. And this is good news, particularly for those who have loved ones who seem so far from the Lord. There is no one who is beyond his love. And this is particularly good. This is good news for those of us who have labeled Christianity as a religion of good works. Because here was a man who was doing everything wrong, and yet he was welcomed in by the Lord. There is no one too unlikely for God. But also, our passage doesn't just show us that about becoming a Christian and following him. It also shows us this, that God chooses us way before we ever choose him. God chooses us before we ever choose him. There's a great danger in emphasizing our choice to become a Christian. There is a great danger in thinking that one day we had the bright idea that Jesus was actually onto a good thing 2,000 years ago. Because God chose us first. Let me show you. You can read with me verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He, this is Saul, fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Can you see, Saul wasn't searching for the Lord when he found salvation. In fact, we can say that Saul had decided against Jesus when Jesus decided for Saul. And uh, this is really clear from this passage, but also Paul will talk about his conversion from the rest of Scripture, throughout the rest of it. And what is so clear is God's pursuit of Paul, the way he breaks into his life. You know that verse in Revelation, the famous one where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock? Well, in this case, Jesus stands at the door and knocks him over. He knocks him to the ground. He blinds him and then he tells him what to do. He radically breaks into his life. He chooses Saul before Saul ever chooses God. But a detail I love here. Can you see that when he calls out to him, he says, Saul, Saul. And this is the risen Jesus speaking. And this is the risen Jesus amazingly speaks just like Jesus as he was on earth. Saul, Saul, he says. And this is echoes of Jesus saying, Martha, Martha. Or Simon, Simon. Or Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
Jesus calls the name of Saul. But in this account, we don't just see God speaking to Saul. We see him speaking to someone else as well, don't we? We see him speaking to Ananias. We can see this in verse 10. And God directs Ananias to a specific street, to a specific house, to a specific man who's doing a specific thing and who's had a specific vision. Can you see how specific it is? Can you see how clear God's pursuit of Paul is? He comes to him personally, and then he goes to another man. And very understandably, Ananias, you know, he isn't totally chill with the whole thing. And he basically says, Lord, I have some questions. You know, this man has been sent here to kill Christians. He's mauling them. But do you see what the Lord says? Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. This man is my chosen instrument. God chooses Paul before Paul ever chooses God. Now, in Clapham in the 21st century, I wonder if our story seems to correlate with this at all. I don't feel like mine does particularly. I feel like I've known God my whole life. Uh, I grew up with uh, Christian, uh, Christian parents, parents who dearly love Jesus, who brought me up in the way of Christianity. And, and yes, I made a commitment when I was young, but actually I feel like I've always known God. Maybe yours is the same. Maybe yours actually just seems like quite gentle, becoming a Christian. Or maybe it was dramatic. I mean, I'd love to hear it. But however it happened, if you're here tonight and you've actually given your life to God, however that happened, the principle that is true for Paul is true for us, that God chooses to love us before we ever choose to love him. And I wonder how you receive that. I wonder if you're finding that hard to balance that with our need to repent and have faith. And I want to explain it like this. It's a really old illustration, but I think it's really helpful. Think of a relationship with God like a door. And as you're coming up to the door, you see written over it, Matthew 10, 32. And Jesus says, whosoever will confess me before men, I'll confess before the Lord. Whoever so will confess me before men, I'll confess before my Father. In other words, you know, whosoever will. So there's something for you to do. As you're coming up to a relationship with God, what you're told is there is something for you to do. You can't be passive. You've got to make a commitment. There are things you need to do. But actually, if you do, and you step through the door, if you bite and you say, Lord, accept me because of what Jesus has done, and you actually go through the door, when you turn around, what you see written over it is John 15, 16. You have not chosen me, but I chose you. You see over the door written, John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father draw him. And everybody who's actually ever moved through that door, who has become a Christian, at some point, I think, realizes this. And they see that in spite of all the work they did, all the commitment it took, all the work it took to make that commitment, when you get in, you start to look back and say, the reason I'm a Christian is not because I'm more spiritual than other people, not because I'm more humble than other people, not because I'm more valiant for truth than other people, It's simply because God kept pursuing and pressing and pushing and loving me until I responded to his choice to love me and die for me. And therefore, what makes us a Christian is that God comes to us first. Not because we're smarter or better or more repentant or more spiritual, 
But God chose to love us before we ever chose to love him. And you see this in people's stories of coming to faith. Even in the most dramatic, can I suggest? Saul here, you know, this is the dramatic conversion experience. This is the Damascus Road. We talk about, you know, someone having a Damascus Road experience. Paul had the Damascus Road experience. But amazingly, think about Paul's life. And I'm saying Paul because he became Paul. Think about his life. He'd spent his whole life learning about God. This man, he actually says, I'm probably the most learned in the Jewish scriptures at this point in the world. So one uh, commentator actually says, well, his conversion was initiated in the law of the Lord. But it's only brought about here in this moment. And isn't it amazing? Because you'll think that uh, Paul would go on to preach the good news to many people. He would be the apostle used by God to preach to Gentiles, to kings. And God had spent his whole life preparing him for that moment. There was no man who knew the law better. Can you see, even in a dramatic conversion experience, the Lord has been at work. I think of a story of a friend who I believe is here tonight, so I'm sorry to leave this to you. A friend of mine had a very dramatic uh, encounter with God, it seemed. This is a friend I had at university. And um, in that time at university, uh, I was, I'd been going to see you in church, and, and she wasn't at that time. But I remember after university, we had a chance to catch up. It was actually near here in Clapham. And we got to talking about faith, and we got to talking about life. And um, she said, some, I was sort of talking about Christianity in quite a coy way. She was sort of asking me, you know, she was clearly interested in what I believed. And I was sort of giving her half answers. And at one point she said, I'm really interested to hear this. And so I, I just began to share as best I could what I knew to be true about Jesus. And from that point, it was amazing. Because the next day she came to church with me, spent the whole time crying, and took away a Why Jesus booklet. Okay? And then on Wednesday she comes to Alpha, and something amazing happened. In Alpha, you have a chance to discuss things in groups. And the way she was speaking, it was as if she'd known the Lord for a very long time. She was speaking as if she was a Christian. And afterwards, I spoke to her and I said, you know, what's happened here? There's a prayer at the back of the Why Jesus booklet to give your life to God. Did you pray it? And she said, yeah. And I said, do you realize what's happened? You've become a Christian. It was so obvious. And really, that, I think that took, happened in two days, Saturday to the Sunday. Bam. What an amazing demonstration of the power of God. But what you see when you talk to her is that she actually can, she traced it immediately back. She said, I'm so thankful to God that I had Christian friends at university. I'm so thankful to the Christian mates that I had in my halls and that the Christian friend I had growing up. And actually, she could trace back the work of God in her life. And I think we all could. In gentle ways sometimes, in really obvious ways. What we see is that God pursues us and he woos us and by his Holy Spirit he works to draw us to him and he uses conversations with people and he uses instances and circumstances and coincidences. Or, in the case of Paul, he literally breaks into his life, shines a light on him, blinds him and says, you're mine. But God draws us to him because he has chosen us before we ever chose him. He chooses to love us before we ever choose to love him. Why is that important? It's important to remember because sometimes it's going to feel like you, can't, you don't have the power to choose God. 
You might be at work, there'll be situations, there'll be circumstances in life, seasons of pain, seasons of apathy, or seasons of blessing, where actually God seems far off. And it seems like your choice of him is pretty weak. But we're not saved by how strong our own faith is. We are saved by the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. We're not saved by how well we can believe in him. We are saved by who we believe in, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He chose in love to die for us, for our forgiveness, for our redemption, for his glory, and for our good works. So the result of this is amazing. God brings total transformation. Firstly, there's no one to unlike me for God. God chooses to love us before we ever choose him. And when we do respond to his love, God brings total transformation. When you give your life to him, when you become a Christian, God totally transforms us. I mean, how obvious is that in the life of Saul? Saul, who had become Paul, Saul, who was breathing out murderous threats, began immediately preaching the gospel and worshipping the Lord. I love the contrast of him going from uh, sight to blindness, back to sight. Um, We could say that Paul began the trip physically seeing, but spiritually blind. And he ends it physically blind, but spiritually seeing. Because the Lord has changed his sight. Read with me. Verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once. He arose and was baptized. So we can say that his encounter with the Holy Spirit was certainly an eye-opening experience. Mm. Mm. Terrible. Just terrible. Now, can you see the transformation in Saul? The trouble again for us is we might be a bit like, yeah, 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 but this isn't me. And this might seem hard to relate to us because we're thinking, I don't feel like God's chosen instrument, you know, who's been chosen to suffer and preach to the Gentiles. But this still shows us what is happening when we become a Christian. And I use that language of becoming a Christian very deliberately. Because the language I hear quite a lot at the moment, uh, as we talk about faith, is the talk of a spiritual journey. A spiritual journey. Faith, you know, I want a journey of faith. And on one hand, yeah, the Bible says we are on a journey. It calls it a race. It calls it a race where we've been given a destination by the Lord. And we need to fix our eyes on it. Throw off everything that hinders us, sin that entangles us, and to run what God has marked out for us to do. But actually, that journey begins when we cross over the starting line of becoming a Christian. Jesus said this, John 5, 24, Very truly, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. You see, the problem of describing faith like a journey, although it might be a journey to faith, is actually when we believe in Jesus, Jesus says you cross over from death to life. The old passes away, the new comes. As Saul is here, is filled with the Holy Spirit. The language of the New Testament is he is born again. He is born again. The old passes away, the new comes. He is in Christ. He is saved. He is saved. Now, 
This is important to note because this is the, what it is to become a Christian. It is to be saved, to have crossed over from death to life. Now, for some of us, have you heard this metaphor before? It's C.S. Lewis. It's really helpful. For some of us, imagine a train crossing a border to another country. For some of us, we're awake for the border crossing. We know it. We can mark a moment. My dad would be a great example. He can be like, yeah, on the 28th of August, 1987 or something, he can be like, I can point to the very spot on the very floor of this very conference center where I gave my life to God, and that was it. From that moment, I was a Christian. And then for some of us, you know, maybe for me, I'm like, well, you know, it's when I, I sort of grew up. I've, you know, I've always been a Christian. So for some people, they're awake as they cross the border. And for some of us, we're asleep. And suddenly we wake up in a new land. But we have crossed over. We have crossed over from death to life. We can see this in Paul, but I just want to show us two amazing things that, that demonstrates, this passage demonstrates about that change. We can read in verse 17. When uh, Ananias places his hands on Saul, what does he call him? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. To the man who is the greatest enemy of the church, Ananias greets him as part of the family of God. This is amazing. When God transforms us, when we get born again, the transformation of the Holy Spirit actually identifies us with other Christians. Suddenly, when you become a Christian, everyone here is your brother and sister. You're not alone. When you get identified with God, suddenly you are adopted into his family. You become a son and daughter of God. And everyone else becomes your brother and sister. This is important because life will be hard. Life will be good. But we need people for the journey. God has created us to live together. I long that this church and especially this service would not just be a distant, disconnected, cliquey community. But it would be a family who love one another radically and give their lives to one another, who actually live out what God has already made us to be. God has already made us a family when we're in Jesus Christ. Will you live it out? Will you love one another? Will you serve one another as your brothers and sisters, as God has made you to be? Will you understand that you are a son or daughter or daughter of God? And so is everyone else who call on the name of Jesus. What a transformation God brings. We get identified with other Christians, but also we get identified with this. What does Jesus say in verse 4? It's amazing. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And when Paul asks who he is, Christ replies, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Isn't that interesting? Saul has been persecuting Christian people, but Jesus says, you're persecuting me. And this shows us another transformation that happens when you become a Christian, when you cross over from death to life. You get so identified with Jesus Christ You become in Christ in such a way that Jesus can say, when you are persecuted, I am persecuted. The language of the New Testament is that we are in Christ. Our whole lives, past, present, and future, get caught up with him. Read the book of Romans. Read most of the New Testament. Because basically what Paul especially does is basically say, this is what the Lord has done for you. This is who he has made you to be. And now, live it out. You've gone from death to life. You've been totally transformed. You are in Christ. And therefore, Romans 8 will say, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can separate in all creation us from the love of God. There is nothing internal. There is nothing we can do. There is nothing external to us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. What a transformation. You get identified with everyone around you who are Christians, and you get identified with Jesus Christ. 
and therefore nothing can separate you from the love of God. And my question to us, is that the truth that you're living from? As you sit down at work tomorrow, as you interact with colleagues or your flatmates, is that the truth you're living from? Or has shame crept back into your life? And actually, the enemies maybe said to you, oh yeah, you might have given your life to God once, but that was just youthful passion. You've actually messed it up. You've actually separated yourself from God again. That just can't be true. That just isn't the testimony of Scripture. When you're in Jesus Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from him. There is nothing that can separate you from him. No matter how far you run, God says, I'm with you. No matter how far we think we fall away from him, God says, you're still mine. And maybe for some of you tonight, this isn't you yet. You're hearing this thinking, actually, yeah, this isn't me. Can I encourage you to begin the rest of your life tonight? Can I encourage you to seek your Heavenly Father tonight? To turn to Him in repentance? Which just means saying, God, I'm sorry for everything I've done before. I believe in Jesus Christ. Accept me on His behalf, on His account. And would we be a church that lives from that place of the love of grace of God? Who trusts Him that there is no one too unlikely for God? who trusts him that he chose us before we ever chose him. And he trusts that when God comes into our life, he totally changes us. He brings total transformation. You see, Paul was in a dark place when a light was suddenly shone on him and God spoke to him. But Jesus hung in total darkness and couldn't hear the voice of God so that we might be made children of God. And because of Jesus' death on the cross and his rising in glory, for all who call on his name, they'll be saved. We can have assurance, we can have hope, a future that nothing in our past can stop us entering into. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are and what you do. And I pray for what I've just spoken. God, I pray that anything is of you. God, I pray that it would remain with us, that you'd seal it in our hearts. But God, anything that is of me, God, I pray that it would fall away. Thank you that when you come into our lives, you make us totally new. And I pray that we'd uh, just long to live that out and that you continue to transform us more and more from glory to glory, more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for who you are and what you do. Amen. Why don't we stand together?